It's the end of the year, ladies and gentlemen, and Wall Street just doesn't care. The bears are fully in control as the Dow drops another 350 points today, Wednesday, December 28th. And where do we go from here? Because right now, all signals are showing us that the selling is going to continue, obviously at the end of the year, but also to go into the new year. Welcome, everyone, to VHS Live. I'm your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I'd like to bring on my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out at sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. Toby, you know, I'm in Buffalo, New York right now. I'm so jealous of you with that warm weather and the sunshine. I am very jealous. But one thing I'm not jealous of right now is those people that are actually holding on to these long positions. What do you think right now? Is this how well, we're going to close out this disaster of a market year? First off, Todd, I would like to say uh, thank you for putting it all together. And number two, point out that I have been right on every one of these damn podcasts. Yes, and, you have. You know, some of, We get some, you know, these, I don't know, unstoppable optimists, whatever, or people who live in their own private Idaho, as I'd like to say. But um, everybody's been wrong, Todd. I'm looking at this. Federal Reserve says, hey, we're, you know, transitory inflation. Wrong. <laughs> All the big uh, guys, you know, the beginning of last year or this year, I should say. Yeah. You know, oof. Gonna yeah. be up here, won't be crazy. Yeah, now, nobody... yeah, and Toby, and you, you did call it. I mean, we were talking about this so-called pivot, you know, months ago, where right. Wall Street would talk about it, and you came right out and said, "Come on, there is no." I mean, how can you? Because you kept on saying you have the inflation right here, and then you got the Fed funds target right here. They got to crisscross, and until they yeah. crisscross, the Fed is going to continue its tightening policy. Well, I'm still going to say this, Todd. If you didn't live in 1982, it, it, it is—it's just hard to get your head around in a way. What Paul Volcker had to do with the 18.5 and then like 21% uh, Fed funds rate. I mean, that's I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't freaking owned a home. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, with a variable mortgage, by the way. <laughs> what an analyst I am. Um, and uh, number one, and then, and, this, and then number two, because of that, these analysts, and I'm saying under 45, have never experienced this before. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they clearly haven't experienced it. We've had crashes, but everybody sort of dissected the crashes and understood that, yeah, you know, when dog or pets.com was selling for 70, 750 times its one year cash, you know, sales, perhaps that was a little extravagant. Okay, everybody understood that. And, and then, you know, then we started doing the mortgages uh, when the interest rates were cut. And gee, if you could fog a mirror, you get a home. You yeah. get a home. And by the way, you, you buy two or three homes. My favorite thing of all time was being in a uh, New York, excuse me, in a Las Vegas uh, gentleman's club, purely on business, Todd. And <laughs> of course, <laughs> and business entertainment. And the uh, dancers were just, they watched me on Fox and they just loved to tell me about the six homes they have that they were yeah. renting in you know, greater Vegas and Phoenix, OMG. Yeah. And, um, you know, then they all puked up, but then the world changed, and I'm in my new uh, newsletter coming out. I, I was going to have a new book coming out here pretty soon. And I think what people really need to understand now, Todd, is that when you make 10.7% a year on average for 22 years, yeah, in the markets that have always been about 7%, and of that 7%, about 55% was dividends, you got to get your ego out of the way. You are not the smartest mofo in the world. You had tailwinds behind you like a hurricane uh, yeah. on valuations. And then you, but the Fed made this shift. 
shift. This Fed, the Fed said, wait a minute, we can cut rates lower, you know, longer because we don't have any inflation. So, you know, let's do that and we'll get a little reversion to the mean, but we'll really get this economy up and going. But then when they decided, when Bernanke said, well, we're going to do this quantitative easing, QE, which is a code word for we're going to buy $6 trillion of bonds yeah. with imaginary money. But when the, when the money hits the banks, that's real money. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was going to pop. Now, inflation, you know, the Fed made the absolute wrong call that we talked about for a year and a half. You can't take the Fed's trillions and then the physical trillions and then put them into a economy that has, you know, 10 openings for every five people going to work. And that cash had to go somewhere. And then, of course, you know, who knew about a pandemic? But when you threw all that money in the system, we completely reversed the economy. We're a 70% uh, services, 72% services economy. And all of a sudden, we were a 70% goods. Everybody had to buy an iPad. Everybody had to get new refrigerator. Everybody had to get new furniture because they're working from home, blah, 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 blah. And that switched the economy. At the same time, we, you know, we wiped out a million people, unfortunately, uh, both in death and also just in long haul. We had another six and a half, eight million boomers say, screw you, I'm retiring, I'm done, out of yep. the marketplace. you got 65 or 70% of 19 to 29-year-old males, of which I know you know too very well, that um, <laughs> that are still living at home. Yeah. And out of the workforce, many of them, Yeah, we have the lowest workforce participation in 18 to 29 year old males yeah. ever, ever. Yeah, so ever. Well, you add it all the, up. Add it know, all up. The Fed screwed the pooch on inflation. Yeah. Then they screwed themselves by pretending that they were still right. And then when they finally came out and said, all right, we were wrong, it's too late. Yeah, and they but here's the thing, they have not given Wall Street any any indication that what they're doing is going to be a pivot because the only pivot really is whether they're going up 75 bips or 50 bips, 25. There's not this feeling of, oh yeah, we're just going to completely shut this thing down and maybe we'll start into an easing cycle in in 3 to 6 months. I'm not exactly sure, and I think you're onto something here when you look at these analysts that are they're younger they're not used to this. They saw they saw so much. You brought up the the uh, QE, the quantitative easing, where we had this artificial feeling within the markets. We had this artificial appreciation. You continue to sell stocks that just kept going up double digits every year, year in, year out. You look yeah. like a genius. And then naturally, when you take all of that into the picture, yeah. and now you have to wonder, now we have some tough times ahead. I think these analysts are almost tri- playing that optimistic role. They're hoping for that pivot. They're hoping yeah. for something that's going to get this thing turned around. But it's not going to happen anytime Todd, soon. Todd, denial is not a river in Egypt. There you okay? go. And then, yeah. and then look at this. You know, the, the Fed changed their rules in 2010. And, and I don't think people really understood what the rules were to begin with. But the idea that, that they thought that they could run the economy hot because they'd slayed inflation didn't count on, you know, a pandemic didn't count on, a, an, a, a, you know, an invasion of Russia, obviously. So I'm not saying yeah. anybody would predict that. But the demographics in the United States have just completely shifted over the last 20 years. And because we're a service economy, when uh, when things get tough, it's easy to lay off uh, it's easy to lay off if there's more you know workers than there is demand. But there's two jobs for every one person still, and that tightness meant that that you know eventually wage inflation was going to happen. Obviously, the pandemic kicked it into gear, but it's not going backwards. That's the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. So now, if you're going to forecast 2023, I mean, there's a silver lining, Todd, in the fact that we're so effed up, and it's really this: the, the Fed had it 
it's hard to even say this word. The Fed's balance sheet in, in 2008 was $800 billion. Yeah. And now not only is it more, you know, like 9 trillion, um, the federal government owes another, you know, hundred trillion. If you add in social security, Medicare, all, you know, all the entitlement programs, mm -hmm. which strangely they never, they never talk about. So now, <laughs> So now here's here you know here's Ross Perot. Hey Tom, here's the deal. Uh, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I remember having him on the shows at Fox News. I I couldn't stop laughing at him. He's like he was like a midget. He was like four eleven. Yeah, yeah. And he got this accent like this, Ross Perot. Yeah. yeah. And, but I tell you what, I voted for that son of a gun. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> versus the other twins. Anyway, so today in 2023, with the Fed funds rate at going to what it has to go to, which is five and a quarter to five and a half percent minimum. Mm -hmm. Many people are starting to say, well, man, why don't we just kill this thing? Let's, you know, go, go Paul Volcker. Here's the problem. When Paul Volcker raised those rates and made me look like an idiot uh, for buying a home in 1982, the, the federal deficit was like $800 million. Uh, the, the actual debt we had was about $600 billion. And so if you raise those interest rates, who cared? You know, Today, last year, last fiscal year, we paid $820 billion in interest payments just on yeah. our debt, just on the, the sovereign debt. But at the five and a half or four and a half percent rate for if you blend two year, five year, 10 years together, we're going to pay $1.7 trillion in interest in, the in this coming fiscal year based on those rates. And we don't have the money to do it. I mean, we can always print the money, but China's selling our our bonds now. A lot of other guys are selling on Japan has started to sell our bonds for God's sakes. And, you know, if they don't cut rates this year, excuse me, in 2023, then we're going to have something's going to break. And what's going to break is we're going to get the bond vigilantes back like it was, you know, in the 1990s with the UK. Yeah. And they're going to start selling bonds like nobody's business. And the Fed can buy them all day long, but then they're going to have no credibility. Because what happens if you drop rates from you know 5.5 down to 1.5 to make sure that the government can pay its you know its interest payment? You're going to have price inflation like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah, we're cornered. We're cornered. There's no doubt about we're it. We're yeah. absolutely boxed in. Yeah. And, and I think that, that was and a, that's, I, I just I, people I, don't realize it. I mean, you know, yeah. I understand the being a macroeconomist is not what most people do, but. If you just look at a spreadsheet of our interest payments and so on and so forth, they you know, they should, if they went all Volcker, oh, we'd only have $3 trillion of interest payments. I'm not even talking about debt reduction. I'm just talking about the interest. And when we cut those rates, we, you'd exacerbate the issue. Instead of having less inflation, you have more inflation. So you'd be cutting rates in an inflating world, which would mean people would say, screw the dollar. And when you screw the dollar, then we got all sorts of problems. So I don't want to scare anybody. But but there's a real opportunity for some financial meltdown here because we don't know, you know, in the, in the housing crisis, we didn't know that, you know, AIG had three trillion dollars of nominal uh, option derivatives on mortgages. We didn't know that. Willie found out when they said, all right, we're bankrupt. I don't know who's going to go tits up here first, Todd, but uh, right. it ain't going to be the government. So it was not no. going to be the government. It's going to be somebody and it's not only that, I mean, you're talking about it on the government level. Take it on the household side. I mean, CNBC had that report that came out, talked about how consumer debt skyrocketed over 20% yeah. during the holidays. People are spending more than what they have. Forget about the 
I mean, they're obviously on gifts, but they're also using the credit card to pay for their household staples, their food, their energy, that type of stuff. I mean, when you start adding in the debt to income ratio at the household level, then you add in all the other macro issues that you just spoke about. And it is a, it's a, it's a, it's just a, a soup bowl of problems yeah. going into 2023. And I think that's why you have so many analysts right now that are predicting this recession to actually take place next yeah. year. The only question is what degree are we looking at? Yeah, it would be a miracle not to have it. I was just looking at the debt to income ratios, by the way. You know, it was really screwed. My wife and I have some close friends up from Canada. She's from Canada. And we, I, I go to Canada twice a year. Great people. Yeah. Because they're, they had lower rates for longer, number one. Number two, they, they, don't, they haven't built any housing. And number three, they had the Chinese population move into West Vancouver, where like my buddy's, you know, three-story townhouse with a garage that he bought for 400 grand, he sold to some guy for $18 million because it was on the right street. <laughs> well, yeah. all that, you know, just inflated real estate. And now they have a debt to income ratio of like 170%. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you know, I mean, they're a, they're not a major economy, but yeah. Look at the UK. I mean, it's the same thing. The London places. Oh my gosh! So I know. So anyway, I'm not trying to scare people. I'm trying to say that there are going to continue to be ways to make money in 2023. Yeah, you're being but, a realist, but it ain't going to be the way you did it from 2010 to 2022. Yeah, no, no, and you're absolutely right. I don't believe you're being pessimistic at all, or, or even throwing out the the um, you know the red flag here, or the white flag, I should say. Yeah. That that now we have to um, you know, just surrender here. I mean, bottom line is you're right. You have to find your your opportunity so let's talk about that after the break too toby so coming up next toby now we're going to really get into obviously a little bit of a report card on the markets we only have a couple of trading days left this year obviously volume is going to be very low but let's also talk about what we can look forward to in 2023 we'll be right back A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Buy, Hold, Sell Live, brought to you by Transformity Research. Travis Carmichael, the seemingly social financier who successfully left behind a blue-collar Baltimore upbringing by transforming himself into an elite hedge fund manager branded with a sterling reputation for creating enviable profit machines for many of the world's most powerful people. His success proved costly as he became incessantly vulnerable after a series of careless mistakes and poor decisions originated from his love affair with the brilliant and stunningly beautiful Russian operative Naomi Knight. Through a roller coaster journey, of greed, mystery, sex, and murder, Travis and Naomi's metamorphosis from scorching Wall Street couple to unrecoverable bliss is forever locked for posterity as one of New York City's most interesting tales. Coming to you from former Wall Street hedge fund executive and frequent contributor on CNBC, Fox News, Bloomberg, and CNN, I, Todd Schoenberger, feature a historical novel inspired by true events, including but not limited to those who possess impenetrable dreams of Manhattan wealth and the consuming lifestyle it perpetuates. Please pick up your copy of No Lie Lives Forever, available on Amazon and finer bookstores near you. 
Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you want to be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with a purpose and a passion, whether you're 25, 85, or any age in between. Gain actionable financial and mindset tips from your favorite authors, podcasters, and influencers to help you reach that exciting next chapter. Listen now and start building your path to financial freedom and reframing what retirement can mean to you. This is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. Welcome back, everyone, to BHS Live. I'm Todd Schoenberger. I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith. And Toby, we saw the Dow at the third to last day of the year. Dow is down, was, was down over 350 points. Apple led the way, actually hit another 52-week low, which is incredible if you really think about it, because just a couple of years ago, I was, you know, Teflon Apple. Nothing could, could stop this thing, and nothing bad was going to stick to it. So yeah, here we, so one thing that, that, you know, when you tune into the financial news channels and Toby, I'm sure you watch them like I do and like all of our listeners do. Everybody's talking about what you should invest in and what, you know, the sectors you should focus on and all this stuff. Let's take it. Let's take the inverse approach right now. Let's talk about the uninvestable sectors. Now, are there any right now in 2023 that that you could think of? Well, let's see. Let's start with, let's start with tech. Uh, Okay. What we're going through here is like the third uh, sea change since I've been in the markets in the early 80s, right? In, in, I mean, in the early 70s, by the way, uh, again, you were a child. I don't know what you're doing at that time. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were twaddling <laughs> around in a diaper. In the late 60s to uh, the you know, mid 70s, there was this thing yeah. called the Nifty 50, right? And, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. My dad was friends with the, the guy who had the hottest uh, mutual fund on earth. In 1969, Jerry Zai was called the Enterprise Fund, and they were 100% in Nifty 50, which were the 50 corporations like IBM, uh, geez, Sears, Roebuck. I mean, it's hilarious if you go through the ones that are out of business. Um, <laughs> but but everybody thought, you know, it was it was so freaking easy. Just buy the Nifty 50, an Enterprise Fund, and he had leverage in it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you did that in 1971, by the time that 1975 rolled around, you were down 90%. Wow. That's incredible. And so the age of stocks don't go down, valuation doesn't matter, you know, went out the window, right? Then in the mid, like 77, excuse me, 78, 79, I was dating this girl uh, in Florida who happened to be in Beverly Hills working for this company called Drexel Burnham Lambert. And uh, I I was invited to interview at 5.15 in the morning at the Drexel Burnham Lambert office with Michael Milken. Yeah, the X desk. That's right. Yes, the X desk. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. And what people didn't realize about the junk bond market, particularly in the 70s or, or earlier, is if you had a bond, I mean, this is how stodgy the bond business used to be. <laughs> you couldn't own, if you were a if you were a pension, you couldn't own something that didn't that had a BBB rating or below because that was uninvestable. You could yeah. only invest in A-rated bonds. And if you weren't A-rated, you had no access to the market. Well, Milken and said, hang on, hang on a minute. He wasn't British, but you know, I want to play that role. <laughs> he said, there's risk and then there's reward. And if you're paid a sufficient interest rate, 
that mitigates a lot of the risk, particularly if in a bond, you know, there's those called a 10 year bond or a five year, you know, we call them junk bonds, right? But they're just, you know, high yield bonds. You couldn't buy a high yield bond until like 1976, 77, if you're a pension. And Milken proved, because he had some big successes in my my idol, uh, Howard Marks from Oak Tree, made a, yeah. uh, here's a technical term, a shit ton of money, Todd. Yeah, uh, there you go. And why? Because now a smaller company could issue these bonds, buy a bigger company, and on a on fixed rate notes. So then, as interest rates went up, and you had these fixed rate notes, you were making just money on the bond. Uh, right. And and now all of a sudden, now we had leverage buyouts and R.J. Reynolds, and then we had you know yep. what's now private equity, and that got the ball you know rolling. And it, it but it, what it did is it changed the risk appetite, the risk calculus in the stock market. And all of a sudden, retail people after '86 and '87 in the crash, the reason why my newsletter business, in, I was in the newsletter investment research business for a long time, still am, was the reason why the the newsletters grew is because a Charles Schwab cut Schwab uh, commissions down to thirty five bucks. It Merrill Lynch, it would cost 25. I know you're a Merrill Lynch guy, so don't get all the genius. Yeah. But the second one was that when you called Dean Witter or Merrill Lynch on October 29th, nobody answered the freaking phone. <laughs> they didn't answer the phone for the next five days. And, yeah. And the people couldn't sell their stuff. We, you know, there was a lockdown market. And then people said, well, excuse me, fuck that. If these guys don't give a shit about me and I can't get a hold of them and I can go to Charles Schwab mm-hmm. and I can, you know, read a prospectus and I'll, I can do better than those schmucks. And at least, yeah. you know, I don't have to be, defend, right? So that ended, that brought in the new do-it-yourself investor. And that all, it was a whole different era, but of risk-taking where before you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. The nifty 50 were risk-free, right? And no, they weren't, um, you know, yeah. bonds. So blah, blah, blah. We take it up to here, but we've, the one thing we've had from 1985 you know, and on is lowering rates. They took federal note rates down from 18%. Gradually, we had a bear, excuse me, a bull market in bonds for almost 40 years. Yeah. And when interest rates go down, the value, if you borrowed money and you could uh, to buy something or to expand your company, so on and so forth, and you can refinance at a much lower rate, your company gets more valuable. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, on the bond on the bond comment though, wouldn't you say that that's one area that you could focus on? I mean, especially going into into the new year, it's 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 very easy to be bullish on bonds for 2023, especially if you do believe that okay, the Fed is going to eventually end that tightening cycle, even though it might not be till Q2, even early Q3, yeah. but they will begin that easing. So it's easy to be, that's an easy bet to be yeah. bullish. Well, I was, you know, I'm, here's what we're telling our subscribers and our uh, uh, customers, money manager customers. Okay. Number one, don't buy the freaking semiconductors. Everybody, you know, was you just made buying semiconductors every dip, right? Well, now yeah. we have a surplus. We have this like gigantic, uh, you know, overreach. Because remember, Everybody couldn't get semiconductors. So what did they do? They all ramped up. You know, you knew that cycle was going to peak. So don't okay. be rushing in and buying semiconductors yet. We need to work through a ton of inventory. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, when we sort of ring the bell with the Fed, when they finally say, all right, we're going to stop and we're going to, um, and I would say that would be April, June uh, of next year. Uh, it, it, I mean, my caveat is, yeah, but, we need to lose about 2 million service jobs and we need about 2 million people to drop out of the marketplace to be available because then we would get someone in equilibrium. The biggest inflation issue now are service wages because service wages in a 72% service economy filter through to everything. But 
when we ring the bell, when the Fed rings the bell, then all of a sudden I can buy these fixed rate, high fixed rate, essentially financial companies, business development companies, mortgage REITs, uh, closed end funds, leveraged bond funds, you, you know, uh, junk bond funds. And when interest rates go down, those prices go up. It's an inverse correlation. And I can buy leveraged 30-year bond index funds that, that operate like 50%. Between your dividends, high dividends, and the 20 or 25% gains you're going to get in, the, in that rate cut cycle, yeah. you, you'll, make, you'll make 40 to 50% in the first year, and you'll make about another 30 or 40% in the second year in guaranteed bonds, in guaranteed mortgage rates, in guaranteed you know business development, of course, and in private equity companies. So there's there's going to be an opportunity. It's just going to be different. It's not going to be buying semiconductors. It's not going to be buying, you know, Zoom.com. It's not going to be buying, you know, Microsoft or Apple. And that's what the mind shift. And that's the third sort of era we've entered. And I'm calling it the back to the future market. Earnings matter. Okay. Revenues matter. Leverage matters. Uh, yeah. Valuation matters. matters. Price equity, or excuse me, the PE ratios, the price, uh, you know, to the to the uh, earning side, all matters. Yeah. But man, when interest rates peak, throw that all out the window because when interest rates drop, the value of these fixed high yield fixed rate stuff just go up automatically. They only simply go automatically because where else could you get? I mean, I'm getting 21% yields from some business development companies right now that that take all, make all their loans and they sell them to the government so they don't have yeah. any risk. I mean, there's going to be these dislocations like crazy when we. Slam on the brakes. <laughs> well, I got to tell you one other. Oh, God, well, one sector I would I would say stay away from in 2023 is real estate, home builder sector. Uh, yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense to actually. I mean, when you start, you look at today's November's pending home sales were the second softest on record, Toby, lowest since April of 2020, and weaker than anything that we saw from the uh, 2007 to 2009 meltdown that we had. And home builder stocks are up. 37% from the mid-year lows this year, which makes zero sense. So if you have to start thinking you're going to have some selling pressure on that sector, that's probably going to be it. That's an area you definitely want to stay away from it, particularly since you have interest rates where they are now, where the mortgage rates are, they're only going to continue to go higher, at least for the first couple of quarters of the of next year, maybe even beyond that. So it doesn't make any sense that if anybody was sitting yeah. on the fence, the affordability factor kicks in and they are not going to be buying homes right well, now. I'm, so I would stay I'm, I'm, far away from that area. Yeah, I'm very interested in the in the trend, you know, that's started in the last 90 days for, for new home builders where they're doing exactly what we did in 1978, which is offering to pay down your mortgage. In other words, they, they take part of the sales price and they apply it to the mortgage principal, yeah. which takes down your monthly payment. The interest rates don't change. It's just that you're they're paying down you know, 15% of your mortgage, or they buy down the, mortgage, the interest rate, which is they pay to the lender of, of upfront fee. So the lender gets the same money, but they're going to charge you a lower interest rate because they buy down you're going to see that. And there's some big home builders that are in the right area that I disagree a little bit. Again, I'm a little prejudiced on Scottsdale. But if, if you look at, at what D.R. Horton is doing out here, you look at what 78,000 new households being 
uh, formed here with all the semiconductor plants and all the other stuff that's uh, moving in the area. They are buying down mortgages. So your mortgage rate is 2%. And uh, well, that's one area, though. That's, you know, yeah, no, that, I, I mean, yeah, that's one. I mean, there, there's other that's one pocket of the entire country right now. And everything I hear is everybody's moving to Texas anyway. I don't hear a lot of people that are moving to Arizona. Maybe they are to you retire. Li- you live in Buffalo. You don't hear anything about anything, Todd, okay? <laughs> That's true. My, my head's stuck in the snow. That's Yeah, sure. I was going to say, right? <laughs> Uh, Absolutely. What other sectors though, Toby? I mean, because we talked about all year long, we've been talking about how cash is a great opportunity, something that that should be uh, seriously considered, especially with some of the higher rates, some of the the online banking accounts that you see now from Goldman Sachs. Capital One now has a new uh, performance savings account that's paying over 3%. Yeah, 5%. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you see these rates. I mean, these these savings rates are high, even though Americans right now are not saving as much money because they just don't have the cash. It's really unfortunate because these rates are higher. But I mean, going into next year, is that still an area that you would advise? Well, if, if, if I lived in New York, high tax places like California, New York, Connecticut, dude, you can get a freaking, you know, muni bond, a five-year muni bond or 10-year muni bond tax-free yeah. Um, that is paying you the equivalent if, if you're in a you know the high tax bracket of like nine percent. You're getting five yeah. percent yields, but you're not paying any taxes, state or local or federal taxes on it. Yeah. So that tax or taxable equivalent yield is what we call. Yeah. It. So uh, you know if you have uh, cash to invest and you need to build a portfolio from the bottom up, you know lower risk up to moderate risk stuff or longer term, I should say. Man, I'd be slugging down those bonds. You can get them in a, you know, an ETF. You can get them in a mutual fund. Um, you know, no commissions, very low yield. Uh, excuse me, very low uh, operating cost for them. But that's the type of stuff, Todd. That when we, you know, sniff the top of the of the of the curve, and and the Fed has to at some point cut here because of the massive dividends that the Fed's got to spend. I mean, remember as we went into the uh, pandemic, the United States government sent out one point seven trillion dollars. Did they have one point seven trillion dollars? No, they did not. <laughs> no. The Fed hit a button and bought $1.7 trillion of, you know, 10-year bonds. And then magically, the stimmy Amazing. checks went up, bro. Um, I got I got to get one of those buttons. Yeah, I know. Well, it's on the second <laughs> floor of the New York Fed. And, and I've actually been into that office. Uh, I interviewed these guys once because I said, so, do you have like a lock key on that? typewriter?" <laughs> <laughs> Like no, you have, have a code. you have to have a code, you idiot. It's eyeball and thumb and other sizzle. It's but, like the Staples Easy Button. That's funny. Yeah, Staples yeah. Easy Button. But we, you know, the Fed has monetized all that money that floated into everybody's house. And then the second thing that cracks me up now is people are still using us. The, the, as strategists, I hear this all day. Well, you know, the household balance sheets are in great shape. And, and I, I mean, I, I mean. Look at, dude, I understand you belong to the Harvard Club. Uh, everybody you know <laughs> yeah. belongs to the Harvard Club. Yeah. And nobody's hurting in the Harvard Club, right? Right. There's no sex in the champagne room, and there's no hurting in the in the Harvard <laughs> Club, right? But, I mean, just to be real. Yeah. Yeah. The 5% of households, a million dollar and up wealth, own basically 90% of all the financial assets, either in, in homes or in real yeah. estate, excuse me, in other real estate or in, you know, brokerage accounts, money market accounts, blah, blah, blah. Right. The bottom 80% of households in the United States owns just 10% of the American wealth. Yeah. And the bottom 60% 
only own 5% of the wealth. Now, if you then add in divorces, you add in life-changing problems, having to move, blah, 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 blah. That idea that the Amer- average American household is just sitting on stimmy checks is they don't read the numbers from the uh, Fed in terms of, of borrowing. They don't read the numbers from Visa, MasterCard, banks on personal uh, debt. They don't read the, the uh, you know, the, the 25 percent credit card uh, deals that they have to take so they can make a payment. United States, because of all of this, the Fed putting the market on the back, they got people to spend discretionary money. That's what the wealth effect has done. But Mm -hmm. now we have the reverse of the wealth effect for people who weren't wealthy to begin with. And that's 60% of the homes, um, households. Uh, And and so this idea that uh, people aren't going to hunker down, look at what happened in uh, December on sales and and November on retail sales. Your, your favorite business. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, dead man walking. Yes. Why? You're right. Because they need to save the credit card in case they need to, you know, pay the mortgage or pay the car payment or so on and so forth. Did you see car repossessions in just oh, so far this month? Ford F-150s, number one cards being repossessed in America. Absolutely. And you know, those yeah. things cost like 60 grand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's the basic package. Right. Yeah, and right. everything and then, else, it's a lot yeah, better than that. You got, it, you got it with an 8% more, you know, lean if yeah. you're, if you're a, over 700 score. But if you're a 600 to 700, you're, you're, you're paying 12% yeah. interest. And that's on the used ones. I mean, yeah, I know. That's not. I, I know I live in a bubble, but I, I ride my bike around the greater Scottsdale and Phoenix area. And um, I make it a, a, a habit to also, when I'm down in Phoenix, come back to Scottsdale on like Seventh Avenue, which is where the real people in Phoenix live. And it's like a different plant, just a different plant. The way that the homes are upkept, the cars, the sun and so forth. I'm just saying it's a different socioeconomic world. And I just think that Wall Street just lives in the Harvard Club. And they can't imagine what it's like to be a real average American household who, uh, yeah, I've got stimmy checks. But to, but, but to count the aggregate of cash for all American households and then divide it by the American households is absolutely the wrong way to measure this. You have to take the top 5%, the next 10%, the next 10%, and then the bottom 6% and see who has the cash. And it's, yeah. not the bottom, it's not the bottom 60, 70%. Well, that is I'm, true there. Kobe. I'm done with that rant, but I'm just telling you. That, <laughs> that's all right. That, I, that's all right. The soapbox looks great. I tell you. The uh, But you are right, though. And thank goodness. I know our listeners really appreciate the fact that we do keep it real here. And we're not in that Wall Street bubble right now. So we can actually talk to everyone really with that, um, you know, the eye to eye knowing that, okay, look, we know what you're, everybody's going through right now. Whereas yeah. it's not just a Midtown or Lower Manhattan uh, issue. So, right. so we are are familiar with it so so listen let's leave it there toby because we're going to have so much to talk about with the new year coming up and i gotta tell you ladies and gentlemen with toby and i have so many big surprises we have new shows we have all kinds of different topics that are going to be coming out some very special guests we're going to have a um a very special show at del frisco's in midtown manhattan we have so <laughs> many good things lots to look forward to so we want to wish everybody a happy new year. Stay safe, have fun, and be healthy. And we, we definitely will see you at the next show. Yeah, and keep, keep putting some money away every paycheck, you know, every time you can right now. Build that cash because you're going to get another chance, just like we had in April 2020, just like we had March of 2022 yeah. buying energy stocks for five cents on the dollar. We're, you're going to have another thing, but you've got to be liquid enough to take advantage of it. And you can't be hanging on to Shopify, still selling yeah. at you know a 70 PE, getting their lunch eaten by Amazon. You can't still be hanging on 
to your freaking ARC, although they're down 80% and she's dropped $52 billion of assets on her management. So, I mean, <laughs> Pretty so there's incredible. not much left. There's not much chicken left on that bone, but uh, <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. Well, those are some great parting words right there, Toby. Definitely. That's what's definitely sound advice for every one of our listeners. So again, ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for joining us. We had a great year in 2022 with Buy, Hold, Sell. We can't wait to see what's next. And so please stay with us and please tell your friends all about us because we're here for the long haul. Again, Woo-hoo! for Toby Smith, I'm Todd Schoenberger. Thanks again for joining us today on BHS Live. Happy New Year, everyone. Take care. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.